I just want to start off this episode by saying I was initially very excited because it is very warm in my office where I must record this now, and therefore I have taken to the policy of the dress code, if you will, of not having sleeves while I podcast. Um, and my, my friends said they were going to roll up their sleeves in solidarity, but their sleeves are now dripping down. and they have I rolled on. up my sleeves. Are they, are they up right now? Are they, they mine, I, I literally just re-rolled them. This is being recorded. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate their attempt, but I believe that they should uh, leave their hesitations behind and take the bold move of actually cutting some sleeves off of a shirt. I ordered some um, tank tops, Caleb. They're on their way, all right? Always forward, never backwards. Uh, <laughs> sleeveless solidarity. Cheers. Hey, everybody, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is the Mix Six, where we drink six beers, have six conversations, rate them on a five-point scale, and occasionally have little fights over certain wardrobe choices. Occasionally uh, have sleeves, Caleb. That's yeah. We occasionally have sleeves. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I just want to rectify that. I believe in perfection. Anyway, uh, we are here to talk about stuff in this, your... 69th regular episode. Nice. I know Hey-o. we said we weren't going to mention episode numbers, but if you wondered why... You want some sound effects? The title of this was Nice. It's because it's the 69th episode. That's the sex number. Caleb, do you want do you want some sound effects for that? No, it's it's fine. Okay. M- monkey right. paw, man. Monkey paw. I mean, <laughs> monkey in, in theory, I do, but I know what that means. So it's like... Okay. <laughs> I mean. All right. Well, no sound effects for you then. Uh, we, uh, we tip, don't say that like it's a fucking threat, Ross. We've been doing this for three and a half years without sound effects. What you, what you just said was, okay, well, status quo then. Um, yeah, I mean, the uh, listeners will be the ones who will be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Um, typically, sometimes we, uh, we talk, we have pre-party things where we talk about where we're going to be or places we could see you or upcoming events. Uh, but everything is canceled. Uh, if you don't believe me. Uh, just just read Harper's Bazaar, um, and so uh, we we must move on and instead talk about our rating system for this episode sixty nine of the Mix Six podcast. And Caleb, this is a first. We are sixty nine regular episodes. How many patron extras have we done? Fifty. Yeah, quite a few. Uh, so that's a hundred and roughly a hundred and twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've done sixty five hot takes plus some Jerry Rubbers. We're well over two hundred pieces of content on this this fucking train. Mm-hmm. And and this I do believe will be the first time that someone has used frankly automatopia <laughs> for a rating system. Mm-hmm. So please take it away. All right, these are movie theme- themes by how fun they are to sing a cappella. Um, we've done a lot of movie nights. Uh, we've watched a lot of movies, and uh, we have all sang our own personal versions of the theme song to each other over Discord. Um, and so that made me think. You can rate these movie themes not by the movies they're in, but by how far, how fun they are to sing a cappella. So, as I listed, a number one, which is a movie theme you don't really want to sing a cappella, and a beer you don't really want to drink, it's going to be not not into it, not into it, not into the movie it's from, not into the guy from the movie that it's from. Um, and it's, it's too much staccato to just lay off. Give me, give me some melody. I'm uh, not into it. Doesn't fit the theme of the narrative Two, two, which is beer you're okay with, but you're not wild about. It's going to be, it's fantastic overdone. Also a little hard on the acapella, uh, the, the little soprano can't get up that high. I'm, uh, Manly man with a barely tenor voice. Um, and no I can't quite make it there because I can't see sing. Uh, so that one's a little overdone. You don't want that beer. So a three uh, is going to be. Uh, which is good. You want that sort of uh, comfortable experience with a beer. Now, a four, we're getting into the good stuff. 
uh, a beer that announced it is there and that it is very cool is going to be dun 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 dun. Uh, and yeah, you want that one in your mouth. And then a fantastic one, uh, a hard five is going to be boom, 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 boom. Because when you perform that one a cappella, you can actually do it in harmony because uh, your friend can go nee, 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 and then it's and then it's great. Uh, it's it's a good beer that is so good it's almost invisible. Um, it's almost hunting <laughs> your taste buds, uh, and uh, it's a beer you want to drink again. To be clear, the movie themes in this episode are identified by onomatopoeia and notes. Uh, and have never and will never be referred to by name. So as we rate these beers, we will be singing you songs from some of your favorite movie themes, like some sort of podcast review. You're welcome. With that, I need a, I need a beer. Hey, Spencer, what are you drinking? So I am continuing this theme of trying these Deschutes one-offs that they're doing, these like mm-hmm. limited release little single bottles, or I think they have six packs of some of them. So this is the Hand Up IPA blurg. But I do want to read you, it's got a, it's got a, a like a biker on the, on the, not like a, like, but like a, um, <laughs> that's what we're doing this episode. It's just all noises. Um, God, yes. All noises episode. Right. And so I do want to read you uh, the side of the label because I hate it. Uh, Crazy trails, ripping racers, more cowbell. Take on all the terrain with this transcendent IPA that's there when you need it. It's like a fucking Cheetos commercial from the 90s. Yeah. Oh, extreme IPA. Has there been one of those yet? I'm going to rip and race. Yeah. They just make the the bottle look like a surge can. Um. No. 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 <laughs> no. Ross has um, zoomed in on his face for ha. to observe Spencer's reaction. Ross, keep doing that. I'm going to screen cap it and post it on Twitter. So this is, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Caleb, I'm tagging you in for this. That is a two, which is the... No, you're the one rating. I, well, I don't rem- identify it. I don't, remember, I don't remember what you did. It's the problem. Well, you can so, read it. I wrote uh, it out. I wrote yeah, it out phonetically, but, so you can do it. But it's just wooey woo woo wooey woo wooey woo, blah 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 wooey wooey woo blah blah blah. See, you and got it. You yeah, got it. Very there. good. Do you remember there. what movie that's from, Spencer? No, no, definitely and not. we never that's will because it's just no. a pure musical composition. Oh yeah, it was uh, it was the westerns, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's yeah. a two. Okay. It's a two. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> this is not good. But like, it doesn't offend me. Um, this is a Western as done by Quentin Tarantino, for example. Oh. Um, okay, so we're into dissecting our fun. And Caleb, you've kind of mentioned this game casually a couple of different times. And then a couple of weeks ago, we all just committed to making the time and headspace available to learn it. And you brought over A Feast for Odin, uh, which is uh, Yubi or Yube Rosenberg's just big boy. Um, if you yeah, like you, a Rosenberg uh, every time game, we plan an episode, have asked me whether we sh- could talk about it or not. So yeah, that's right. Left, that's right. I think it left an effect on you. <laughs> it did. So if you've played a Rosenberg game, and Second Chance may be the uh, the may be the exception here, but if you've played a Rosenberg game, chances are whatever mechanic that game was based around is in Feast for Odin. Now here's what's interesting. Not really. If second Chance is about uh, orthogonal placement, polyomino right. placement to cover as much shit as you can. <laughs> It's true. If you've played every Rosenberg game, chances <laughs> are you were just playing A Feast for Odin just in bits and pieces. Uh, it's like if the treasure map were torn up and you were piecing it together. Yeah, it goes um, either way. If you've played every you Rosenberg game but not Feast of Odin, you don't need to. And if you've played Feast of Odin, you might not need to play the other Rosenberg games because <laughs> it's all And the I mechanics. think that's the bit. And the, the reason I want to talk about it, and I'm, I'm going to let you describe uh, what Feast of Odin is like and kind of the, the, the play style and you should know that it was like a three and a half to four hour play, I think for four of us, but here, here's why I want to talk about it. Um, we have played a lot of like big heavy games before, and some of them have been really great. Some of them we really like, we have not played as many big games as a feast for a It may in fact be like one of, if not the biggest game we've ever played. And in terms of 
scope, size, weight. And as a ratio to fun, enjoyable, thinky, I don't know that I've ever played a game with a better ratio than Feast for Odin of weight to fun, which is to say games of that heft often to me lose the enjoyability of thinkiness either in some phase, the beginning, trying to figure out how to get your engine going, the middle after you've got an engine going, but you don't know how to get to the end of the game or the end of the game where you have a bunch of engines going and you're not going to, you're not really sure what's going to score points. At no point did I feel that way in a Feast for Odin because despite the fact that it is six or seven of your favorite mechanics kind of tied together in this Uber game, I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah. So your, your basic, to give people a basic idea of Feast of Odin, and I'm just going to describe it for what it is, because if you're not into scope, you're not into Feast of Odin. It is a thing for maximalists. Um, So Feast of Odin is a game about being a uh, Viking uh, community, and you're trying to make your Vikings as successful as possible through a variety of means, basically anything a Viking might have actually done, because Feast of Odin comes with an actual historical glossary book in the box that doesn't have rules in it. It's just about shit that Vikings once did. Um, and that's the, that's the whole design of Sector of the Feast of Odin. Did you that's want it. worker placement actions? How about 65 of them? Did you want 65 possible actions that you could put your meeples on to perform? Because that's how many of the board has. Did you want to start your Euro game off with negative 80 points? and have options to get more negative points later on in hopes that you can actually turn those into additional positive points in the swingiest victory point mechanic ever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's got that shit. So basically what you do in Feast of Odin is you're trying to take care of your Vikings. Your Vikings have to be fed, which is a large part of your process. You've got to feed the little meeples. You expend your meeples to perform actions on this enormous board. And then the main thing you want that board to do, aside from feed your Vikings, is provide you things to cover up a map of your community. Because the majority of the spaces on this map of your community are negative points if they are left open by the end of the game. However, there are resources which, if in a polyomino placing mechanic, you surround, you will get every turn as an income economy builder. So it's basically like Tetris if you had to do like four complex currency exchanges in order to place one block um, mm-hmm. that is Feast of Odin. And yep. if that's not for you, it's so not for you. But if yeah, you get out. be like, if you want to prove that you're a big, strong board gamer who ain't scared of nothing, Feast of Odin's freaking great. Like, once you get into it, it's just such an absorbing puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, there, that's, that, I didn't like, even get I to, have... like, the 350 occupation cards. Which are all I, distinct and none repeat. <laughs> we change the rules, yeah. I, I'm so interested in this game because of its size and its scope and all of the mechanics you're interacting with and all of the ways in which you can score points or unscore negative points, really, which is like kind of like your primary goal for the bulk of the game. Despite all of this like layering, all of the things you can do, what was interesting to me is that I don't really have a nuanced take for this game with this many elements. My take is like, holy shit, all this stuff works really well together, and I enjoyed the actual fuck out of it. And not many games of that size or scope, they're almost all appealing to me, but like, and, and I'm saying this out of pure ignorance, when I think of games that have that kind of size or scope, like I'm starting to put that in categories with like TI4 in terms of, oh, by the way, you're dedicating an afternoon, if not a day, to this thing. Yeah, don't touch. And I have um, no expectation that TI4 is going to be enjoyable. But, but not only was uh, Feast for Odin enjoyable, it was like I have actively wanted to play it again. It's just honestly really hard to find five hours to sit down and play a board game. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic game. Um, if you're into it, you know you're into it. Like, don't worry, it's not going to disappoint you like some of the other big releases have with tons of iconography. Um, it's not going to disappoint you. It's one of the best Euro games ever made. Yes. Uh, and then the other thing is that no one's going to get tricked into buying Feast for Odin. It's $110, and the box is as big as a f- fucking chest that you'd find at yeah. the bottom of an ocean. Like It could, it it could kill a medium-sized like, hunting dog. Yeah. yeah, you don't trip and fall and accidentally buy a copy of Feast of Odin. So it's mm-hmm. just... It's just there serving as the apex of what it does. And that's uh, right. It's advertising exactly what it does. And so if you suspect you'd like it, I, I'm going to go ahead and say you would because it's big and chonky, but it's very cool. 
Yeah, this Chunky. is this is a, a non-paid advertisement for Feast for Odin. That's all this <laughs> segment is right now. I was shocked. It's big. It's hard to learn. Caleb did, and Caleb generally does a good job of teaching the game. He did an exceptional job of teaching a very large game, and still there were things to learn and explain and figure out as the game moved on because there's just so much evolution over time, and then once an engine gets going, man, it just feels like the right kind of engine. So um, if you like Rosenberg games, if you like core board game mechanics, and you ever just wanted to put all those things together in a blender for four hours, go get yourself a copy of The Feast for Odin. And on that note, Caleb's going to grab a beer, and we'll be right back with your number one vote-getter this week, which was B-Hole-in-One. Caleb, uh, what beer will you be singing about? Uh, so this is from PH Brewery Ltd. out of St. John, Canada. No, I don't imported think so. by the Massachusetts Beverage Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. the Crafty Rattler, a grapefruit and tangerine uh, craft beer and fruit soda. Mm. So I'm gonna give it a shot. Grapefruit's risky, man. Like, on the one yeah. hand, I actually kind of like Stiegel Rattler, the grapefruit. But on the other hand, most grapefruit tastes like vomit to me. And so, oh, Caleb does not seem does not. Seem that happy. is delicious. Oh, wow. That is the best grapefruit thing I have had in maybe ever. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. Pretty good. So, I'm yeah. guessing, like, appropriately sweet and juicy, not. Well, I guess the tangerine's bit. helping, too, yeah. in this regard. Like It is um, tangerine. Very effervescent, carbonated, but the the beer is um, very viscous, so it gives it like mm. a cream soda quality. Mm, mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. like a grapefruit cream soda with like a little twinge of like alcoholic uh, bubbles on the back end. It's delicious. Like I, I like would drink this. this after a run, and I don't run, but I am an alcoholic, which is I can't tell if that's high praise or low praise. I run, but. It was. I mean, you don't want a bad beer after you go run them. Boom. It's true. That's definitely a five. Yeah. That's a five. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, We're into your number one vote getter, which is the B hole in one, which is of course where we throw uh, non beer objects into the beer hole, and what comes out the other end is beer. So we pair these things functionally with with beers that we've consumed in the past. Uh, Caleb, what are we talking about in this episode of B hole in one? Turtle asks, throw tabletop RPGs into the B-hole, like D&D, Red Market's Old School Hack, Palladium Rifts, Fate Core, Base Rudders, and Orpheus Protocol. Uh, I don't think we're going to do that many, Turtle. Uh, we also need to do the, as a socialist, I feel we need to distribute the labor. Uh, so producer Ross is going to pick the RPG. I will explain the premise to Sweet Baby Spencer, Hello. Uh, who then must pick the beer that it goes with. So, Okay. Uh, Producer Ross, you're up first in this, our assembly line so, podcast progress. Am I allowed to have the freedom to pick any RPG, not one of the ones that was suggested? Or do I have I to mean, pick one? I mean, you risk the wrath of a man named Turtle, or a woman <laughs> named Turtle, or, right, whatever, or however that turtle identifies. You're going to get the wrath. but Because um, I, I, I see where they're going for, but... Um... Uh, I want to start with something that's not going to be like a bad RPG, but it would be interesting to see what Spencer does with this. Fiasco. Mm. So Fiasco is a GM-less game in which you all play characters in what is largely understood to be a Coen Brothers farcical um, crime hijink uh, tragic comedy. Um, And the exact shape of what you improv as how things happen is determined by a bunch of random uh, D6 rolls. Yeah. I'm actually familiar with fiasco a little bit. Um, And, and so for this one, I'm really inspired by the ways in which the randomness of all of these different elements really combines to make what seems to be from what I've heard from people, a pretty good gaming experience more often than not. Mm -hmm. And so what I would pick is Stillwater artisanals, Kung Pao, Imperial stout, Brewed with chili powder, ginger powder, Szechuan pepper, sea salt, and peanut extract. Oh, yeah, that is more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Exactly. A a bunch of random fucking shit thrown into a can, and it has the extra added risk of being a Stillwater beer, and yet (laughs) it comes out on the other end as a five. Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. I think that's a dead-on pick. Uh, Producer Ross, hit him again. All right. um, Actually, we'll go with something that Caleb's worked on, but not Red Markets. Better Angels. 
So the concept of better angels is that um, Silver Age comic book supervillainy where people were like, the Joker was like kidnapping the mayor so that he would name a highway after him or, you know, carve his face on the moon and really dumb villainy, stuff like that. But it was uh, comics coded down to PG. Uh, The premise of better angels is that all of that is caused by being possessed by a demon because the person possessed by the demon gets powers from the demon, but the demon only keeps the powers coming if you do bad things. So the villains are intentionally self-sabotaging to do just kind of sucky things so they can keep the demons happy without getting dragged to hell for genocide and actual evil. That's why they're like, they're carving their face on the moon and stuff. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. Uh, so this one, this is risky, right? Because here I am about to comment on one of Caleb, one of my best friends in the whole wide world and of my life, but some of his work. And so I, I, I'm going to be both complimentary and honest here. Um, Red markets for me, and I have a limited exposure to RPGs, but Red Markets for me, and I believe for largely the RPG community, is is the equivalent of Towel Brewing's Mr. Brown, which is... But that was Red Markets, not Better Angels. Exactly. And so Better Angels would be Towel Brewing's Mr. White. It's like, <laughs> it's from the same author, and it's still good. We gave it a three. It's just not a Mr. Brown. Like it was a good beer. It was a double dry hopped IPA, and there was some jasmine in it. If you don't, if you don't remember, and it was like mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And I would probably drink it again. But then at some point, someone would be like, "Oh, you like Toll Brewing? Have you had the Mister Brown?" And then you would drink that, and you go, "Oh, well, I'm not going to drink Mister White anymore." Um, okay, so that I'm that is sorry, how I would Greg. resolve that beer. I'm so sorry, Greg. I Aww. failed you. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, Greg Stolze wrote that game. <laughs> I don't feel bad about this review. <laughs> I think it's, I think, I, I, yeah, it's fine. Um, Producer Ross, hit us again. All right, you know I got to do this one, Caleb. I got to do it because it's me. Uh, Cinnabar. Oh, God. <laughs> so the world of Cinnabar is written by a man whose Christian name is Raven McCracken, uh, who is a uh, apparently very wealthy programmer from Microsoft, who designed his own, like, weird Hollow Earth fucking RPG that had, like... Was that the one with laser sea-doos? Uh, yeah, among other things. Laser uh, sea-doos. Um, it has a raccoon wearing a suit of fur with a rocket <laughs> launcher. Uh, yeah, no, has uh, Barla everything. has a tattoo. It has wear this. every animal, including werewares, which no one can, no one has ever decided what a werewear is. Um, and it's generally considered to be the fantasy heartbreaker of the setting, like the most, oh, a crazy person made their own RPG uh, RPG in the entire hobby, which is really spoiled for examples of that. Um, yeah. So that's... Uh, well, so the, the obvious answer for me then is Omnipolo's Sploing, uh, <laughs> which if you remember which may have cinnamon in it, if I can't remember. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's a mango s'more IPA brewed with marshmallows, graham crackers, salt, lacto-sugar, mango, and vanilla, which, which is actually what would happen if you asked a crazy person to go into their cabinet <laughs> and make a... And, uh, and so anyways, here's this Sploing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've got time for one more, right? We can right. do one more. Well, we should do the standard bearer. I mean, this is this is the one that was actually requested. D and D, like Dungeons and Dragons. Do I do I need to? I don't need to explain D and D. Do you want to pick a? I can. Well, how about a different edition? Do you want to pick the newest edition or? Uh, no, I can, we're good. We're good. We got it. He got this. He got <laughs> we this. We don't get want in the there. edition wars in there. All right. My, yeah. my. He excited, but he confused. Let him get. Let him do this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to find. The blandest thing ever. <laughs> but like, what was the episode? So we did an episode of just gas station beer, which was like, mm-hmm. so what was the three on that episode? Was it Budweiser? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it might be Bud Heavy or something like that. Like, that's it, right? Like, I have no opinion of it. It exists. People find out that I'm into board games and they ask me about D&D. And for me, so in that case, actually, I think it might be like Boulevard Wheat. Let, let me go with Boulevard Wheat because... The only analog I have here is like when people find out I have a podcast about like craft beer, they'll ask me like, oh, how do you feel about And then they'll insert the most generic craft beer thing. Like it might as well be like, oh, are you a Sam Adams fan? It's like, oh, oh Blue Moon. Blue yeah. Moon. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I assume that that both of you have spent the majority of your professional working life saying like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I write role playing games. Oh, like D&D. 
And so that is the analog that I have in my mind here. I'd Whatever probably put the, it at a two, to be honest. I'd play it if I was like arm behind my back, but I wouldn't turn down a butt heavy is what I'm saying. That's fair. <laughs> uh, That's fair. I'd probably turn down playing D&D unless I was really in a pinch. Um, right. But yeah, that makes sense. Okay, uh, I think we all did a great so job. Question. Yeah, yeah I feel great about my performance at a minimum. Uh, <laughs> Producer Ross is going to grab a beer, and we'll be right back on the other side with Ask Mix 6. Producer Ross, what are you drinking? I am drinking the last of the beers from Australia. Uh, John Boston's The Point Pale Ale. Dry hop, and uh, it's a pale ale, so... So exciting. Why didn't you do this one first? Why weren't you yeah, clamoring? No, mm, mm. <laughs> mm. yep. It's hoppy. It is uh, definitely a pale ale. Um, I'm going to give this... It's not... I mean, I'm going to finish it, though, so it's not, like, awful. So I'm going to give it a two, which is a... Yeah. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, it was is that bad. was that was that suitable? Yeah. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, as if you needed more good news other than producer Ross's great singing voice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very time for Aspen's fire sale. We're gonna just get to it. Uh, so, uh, who's gonna ask the? I don't know how we're doing this. How are we doing? I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I believe that in the order of rotation, Caleb, you did it two episodes ago. Ross, okay. you did it last episode. Mm-hmm. I will do it this episode. All right, jump on that grenade. Get it, buddy. All right, uh, Caleb, I'm asking you from Turtle. You get to remove two brewing styles from the planet. Which ones do you choose, and why are they both IPAs? Um, they're they're both IPAs because, uh, man, why are they both IPAs? Um, for the lulls. I want to see IPA guys cry about it. At this point, I've gotten so vindictive about the love of them that um, even though I've had enough to like redeem it as an idea, it would be worth it just to watch IPA bros uh, lose their shit down on O'Sullivan's or whatever the fuck they're drinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's my answer. Uh, producer Ross, I'm asking you from James Burns, is Robert Frost overrated? Sure. I mean, you walk through... <laughs> A path less less traveled. Uh, what else? What I mean? What have you done for me lately? Um, it really is. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, is your argument that Robert Frost <laughs> hasn't written anything lately? <laughs> yeah. What's he done lately? I mean, I mean, that's the Hollywood response, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I think that's perfect. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get a better review. That's it. That's it. They ain't writing shit no more. Old news. (laughs) Robert Frost, what have you done for me lately? Uh, uh, I will ask myself from Chris Oshita, what sorts of tea do you enjoy? This is a good question, Chris. I go through, I go through periods where I feel like I'm having a heart attack when I drink too much coffee, which is actually just called anxiety and depression, but I blame it on coffee. And so what I do is I switch to green tea thinking, well, that'll be better for me. Uh, so I really like green tea of an evening. I will drink the fuck out of some peppermint tea to do something like a little fun and a little desserty, but also it relaxes me. And I have been known to slam a uh, sleepy time tea as an all natural sleep aid that never works, but the placebo effect is real. And don't you forget that Caleb Joey Rogers asks, what breweries do you guys like enough to wear their branding on a COVID mask? <laughs> I, I wouldn't associate a, the brand of a brewery I like with Plague. <laughs> I don't think it's very good <laughs> for a thing you put in your mouth. So I guess Schlafly. I I feel okay wearing Schlafly a Schlafly <laughs> label across a COVID mask because uh, really I don't doubt that Phyllis had something to do with bringing us here. There it is. <laughs> May there she it is. burn in hell. So a Schlafly mask please uh producer ross i'm asking you ken r asks what are you watching on youtube these days um actually i'm watching a lot of uh adam neely uh he is a uh jazz musician and sort of like youtuber guy uh explaining a lot about music he did this really great breakdown of um 
Whiplash, the movie, but he also recently just did a half hour thing, which I haven't, I, I, I'm about, I actually going to watch it, start watching it tonight. The girl from Ipanema. It's like a 33 minute thing about like God. the, the, the music stylizing and like, apparently, I mean, Burke said it was really good. So uh, I'm watching a lot of Adam Neely uh, uh, recently. Uh, what else? Also, um, there is Dan Bell, uh, I think. Yeah, that's his name. He does uh, Urban Exploration, or he did. I don't know if he's still doing. Uh, and he has a Dead Motel series. Uh, so, like, uh, a ba- Urban Exploration of these. And he also explains, like, the history of him. Like, he went to this one called the Green Ghost uh, uh, Hotel, which had a Holio Dome, like a Holiday Dome, which was, like, this whole thing where it's like, oh, you live in New Jersey and you can't go to the tropics? We'll just have an indoor swimming pool that's made up Love to it. look like a beach. And, like, that, that'll be your vacation. So, like, a Holiday Inn on crack? Yeah, basically. And like it's it. when plane travel became cheap, like people stopped going to them. But like it was a whole thing for like decades across the country. Um, so, yeah, Dan Bell and Adam Neely. If I believed in the existence of YouTube, I would watch that. Um, <laughs> Frederick asks, I'll take this one. So what did you guys do to make the holidays different? And Frederick, I don't have a good answer here because one of the things you need to know about my lifestyle is that I hang out with as few people as possible, as often as possible, and the holidays are just an excuse to do that when work is officially canceled. So, nothing. <laughs> it nothing to deal with a different holiday this year. Uh, Stephen Lee asks, Caleb, what is something in your life you want to improve by a small amount and it would make you happy? Not a radical change, just a 10% change. Um, writing? Writing. Hmm. 10% would feel pretty huge at this point. I think I've uh, reached and exceeded the level of my talent, actually. So, so, bumping, uh, so bumping 10% at this very low gradient of change Aww. would be pretty great. Yeah, love it. Uh, Producer Ross, you're up last. Ethan Cordray asks, do you still use cookbooks for cooking? At my library, we're still buying so many new cookbooks when I feel like I haven't used a cookbook for anything in what feels like years except cocktail books. I use the hell out of those. Uh, no, if I need a recipe and I do frequently look up recipes, but I just get them all from the internet. I'll find like whatever the blah, blah, blah recipe. And then I'll find something like, Oh, that seems easy. I'll do that. Like I I love, I love libraries, Ethan, but they are dens of the elderly. That is why the cookbooks are there. Um, yeah, it will not go on forever because I look everything up online and Sarah does and every recipes are, it's just so much easier to look at, have it on your phone than having like a book there yeah yeah but grandma wants a cookbook so it's it's gonna be at the library for a bit (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and with that we've made it through another fire sale on that note caleb's gonna grab a beer and we'll be right back with your number two vote getter humanity's fight Caleb, what, uh, what's this guy that you're going to drink? I am going to drink the Wells Bombardier Glorious English, which is a premium ale. It is an intensely, intensely gray, intensely uh, family-crested can that looks extremely British pub. So I'm going to give it a drink and see what's going on in there. I don't love most English beers, and I would tell you that for a long time I was very interested to try Boddington's Pub Ale, which feels deeply British, and I did not care for it. And so I'm hoping that you no, have a good Boddington's did not impress me. Yeah, no. I like Boddington's. I like English beer the closer it gets to being um, drank and interpreted by Ireland, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> um, that, you would be hard-pressed to tell anyone you were drinking beer, not to mention mm. an English beer. It is non-existent i feel vaguely hydrated and that's all i'm getting off of my tongue so i'm gonna give it a two because it's like it's it's just bubbly water um which is funny considering the you know british hatred of american beers which used to be accurate but now fuck you we came back Mm. that's right that's right yeah uh um hey we're into humanity's fight wait did you sing your thing or did you just give it a number Oh yeah, it's a two, which is uh, gonna be but there's no suspense like that song because it's just right. it's just a two, just that over and over again. Yeah, um, we're into humanity's fight, which was your number two vote getter. And Dag B Holland asks, 
Due to everything going on in my life, I haven't managed to catch up on your latest episodes in forever. Don't worry, Dag, neither has my wife. When I inevitably get to the upcoming episode sometime in 2030, how much do you think the world will have changed by then? And which of you do you think can Nostradamus it up better? So the the question really here is like, uh, can, can people make predictive arguments? How accurate are they? And can we do it? Yeah, this is originally a question, but I, I liked it enough to make it its own segment because it's pretty obvious that most every prediction about the future is wrong in some way. But um, I've done some work in future studies, which is a form of cultural studies focused, uh, focused largely on, well, it doesn't know what it's focused on because there's these differing idea of, uh, it's called future studies plural because it, in, it indicates multiple futures. Um, and so a big part of future studies is a meta discourse on future studies, which makes the argument that is future studies strictly useful to a society as a um, as an act of imagining? Is it useful in that like, a Star Trek recorder became a thought model for what became a thing that was nothing like a Star Trek recorder, but achieved the same technological end. Is it useful as a thought experiment um, for cognitive ideas or the other idea of future studies? Is it useful as a literal pragmatic predictive model? Like is your future study theory as accurate as uh, what the future ends up being, whether or not you're right or not. So um, there, that's a bit of a debate that keeps coming up within that field. And I thought it'd be might worth thinking about. As for our dumb little podcast, um, nothing will be right. Or if it is right, it, it's going to be because it was a really tasteless joke. And that's just how the world works now. The tasteless jokes become real. Um, but yeah, we're not going to have done anything. But I think it's interesting to think about predicting the future as having value or, or um, as being the responsibility of someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why it could be a humanities fight. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So I, um, I spent an entire semester in an argumentation seminar writing uh, th- what turned into three papers on and a large portion of my dissertation on pr- the nature of predictive argument. Uh, and there is a small niche subsection of rhetorical criticism which attempts to take a variety of different approaches to understand why predictive arguments are prevalent and why people, what, what kinds of things are likely to hook people in terms of predictive argument. And so I, I was particularly interested in this uh, because I was writing at the time about Ray Kurzweil and the singularity. Ray and K. Of course, Ray K. Friend of the show. Much of, much of Ray K's uh, ethos is based on his excessive reminders that he has at various times in different works predicted uh, what, what have now come true, technological innovation. And I was interested in why that, that argument, look, I've, I've predicted the future in the past, so therefore the singularity must also be true because I'm using a similar process of deduction, induction, abduction, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you should give me a lot of money uh, so that you too <laughs> can, be, can be a part of this curve of history. Um, Those pills aren't going to buy themselves, man. He has right. to take 82 vitamins an hour or he will die. <laughs> That's exactly right. How is he going to fucking freeze his head if he doesn't have enough ice, people? Uh, <laughs> and so I was interested in like, okay, so where where does that the, – the generic form of that argument also exist when, when, it, when it gets traction? I'm not interested in arguments that someone said no one listened to. I'm interested when people listen to arguments. And so a lot of the literature around that kind of stuff is really an apocalyptic discourse. Um, David Koresh, the second coming arguments, much of it is based in religious discourse. Uh, And so I got really interested in drawing parallels between Kurzweil's discourse, which is in some ways deeply non-religious and in other ways extremely religious. The apocalypse Um, of nerds, yeah. That's exactly right. Um, In many cases, the far right would see it as no different than hell rising up and claiming the earth in a transhuman future. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, And I got interested in kind of like trying to figure out like why, what are the elements of these things that are similar and may therefore explain why people are willing to listen to these types of claims. And I would tell you that um, expertise and credibility uh, are important items in these moments. And what's even more important is that expertise and credibility have to be almost in contradistinction to, uh, practical 
reality, right? Like at some point you have to take the expertise and credibility of the speaker and that has to matter as a factor of 10 more than what seems like a logical or rational trajectory of time because that's where you have to make the gap or the jump. You have to disassociate your sense of time from this is the way things are going and you have to accept, instead accept a model that time is fluid and that it is much more exponential than it is linear. And so therefore people get to play with what is actually going to happen. So in order for these things to work, you really have to treat time dynamically and time doesn't as much become a, a point on a calendar, rather it becomes an end state or a felt reality, a kind of an imagined, uh, idealized felt reality. And if, if people are willing to accept that, they are willing to accept a lot of these predictive discourses. And, and it was kind of fascinating to me to trace the lineage of this in hyper-techno-rationalism uh, all the way back to, you know, the, the, the New Madrid quakes of the turn of the century and kind of see parallels in these discourses. As for, as for the singularity, this is why I'm like reasonably open to the idea that like, sure, might fucking happen, don't know, uh, am not at the same time willing to accept the kinds of things you need to accept to play in that world, but also understand that those things matter and that they do come to fruition. And I do think that science fiction, I mean, this is Arthur C. Clarke's argument, right, in Pebbles in the Sky. Um, science fiction, some of these discourses are important discourses because they inspire. And so it may not be that a phaser is a blueprint, but a phaser is inspirational. Mm-hmm. And that's a blueprint. Um, and so, yeah, I think yeah, there's I, value in I think that's the way to go with it. Because when you start calling shots to, like, the bleachers and shit. Yeah, um, Absolutely. It's wrong whether you got it right or whether you got it wrong. Like it was right. sad that people gave a shit if you got it wrong, and it's even sadder that people give a shit if you just happened to point where the ball went because you didn't yep. call it. Because in futures, there's something called black swan futures, which are um, statistically improbable but still possible futures that occur anyway. So mm-hmm. an example would be. Um, 9-11, for instance, like if you didn't predict exactly that happening, um, a futures analyst would, or a person in future study would say that is not a fault of your predictive model. It is a vanishingly small statistical possibility, which is never an impossibility. But then future studies does dumb shit by arguing like what percentage of all future events are black swan futures. And right. it gets into the fucking weeds of academic uh, whip it out and measure them like every other academic field. But what I will say is that if you don't know what the fuck's going on, it's because we are in the like most insane run of luck black swan futures blender that maybe has ever happened in our lifetime. Um, since 2016, just the number of fucking things that no one sane or rational could have ever predicted happening. COVID being chief among them um, is staggeringly high. Like, the game done changed, and it done changed on an almost hourly basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, nobody fucking knows. Right. Yeah, <laughs> if the algorithm it, doesn't have this, like, it, you know, yeah. Just watch, just, just think of the cultural swing over the last six years, five years on Nate Silver, for example. I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, no shit. <laughs> coming out of 2012, th- this notion of predictable predictable modeling, uh, Nate Silver's work with 538, the New York Times uptick. Um, one of the things that we started to tell ourselves, you know, post 2012 was, man, we have figured this shit out. I mean, we've been working hard for years to really make deep data work for us. And now we, we've done it. Um, well, no, we haven't. And so, <laughs> and, and, and maybe that's because uh, this is not a rational state and we are not rational actors. And, uh, and that's why I don't bother predicting 10 years from now, but I don't think that means it isn't a worthwhile endeavor and can't create some of the change you would hope to see a decade heretofore. So go, go forth and predict. Might we all be so lucky? Um, and on that note, I'm going to grab a BWR and we'll be right back with Jukebox in the Bank. I actually just got off the phone with Ray K. He wanted to let us know that 
we have three gigabytes on the ark ship in which to store our consciousnesses. So yes, now we're going to have to merge into some sort of cognitive hive mind. And we're really going to have to compress the files. Cause again, it's just three gigs, but we will soon be hurtling through space from our dying planet. So the mix six podcast will survive forever into the stars. All hail. Uh, the Mix Six podcast and it's God Emperor Ray K. Anyway, Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from Cigar City Brewing, and, and I don't. We we tend to like circle around a couple of their beers. I think we've had the Maduro Brown on the podcast, but I don't totally remember. Yes, that sounds accurate. But I would tell you this: most of the Cigar City beer I have is very good, and mm-hmm. I have had this mm-hmm. beer before, but it struck me that we've not yet had it on the podcast. This is the Margarita Goza. And it is a hard five, hard five, totally refreshing, a little tart, appropriately sweet. It has some of the margarita notes that you're expecting in a beer called a margarita goza. And then it's got a little bit of the sourness on the back end. It's also a fairly light drinker. Um, it is a 4.2% beer, which means you can crush these all day. Nice. Um, so big fan of the margarita goza. That's a five. And I don't remember what a five is. Well, you can read it. So after boom boom There you got you got it boom yeah you got it nailed it got it got it um hey we're into jukebox in the back and Ken R asks when jogging or lifting weights what's on your workout playlist and this is a topical consideration I've been doing a lot of jogging and lifting weights and playlists are important for those moments. I have to think back to pre-COVID days, but I was worried about playlists for a while there. Yeah, so I've transitioned all my workout stuff to home, and it's actually gone pretty well. I've just been running more, and then I built a little workout space downstairs. And so, and luckily, my trainer's been great and has been sending videos, and we've been kind of communicating virtually and, and checking things, and it's been awesome. Uh, I will tell you, so my initial thought when I started working out and, and thought I need to have music uh, in, my, in my brain to do that, my initial thought was, like, I want high-energy, high-octane stuff metals, mm-hmm. primo, etc. cetera. Uh, not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, what I, not what I want at all. Um, in fact, that stuff, which is too high energy, too high octane, is too uh, elevated all the time. And what I want is stuff that is actually like fairly easy to nod your head to and has a good beat and a little energy to it. And if I can get some consistency and some rhythm, then that is enough to keep me going. So I really like listening to like uh, um, like electropop. I really like listening to electropop when I'm working out and or just like top 40 pop music. I'm not worried about the lyrics. I'm not thinking about whether or not it's good music. Uh, it, is, it is mathematically and scientifically built to make your brain feel good, and that's what I need while I'm working out. So that's what ends up on my playlist. Uh, I have specific bands that I can always go to. So the, my two go-tos are uh, Death From Above, 1979, um uh especially you're a man i'm a machine that's pretty good rock music to work out to and then anything by death grips <laughs> anything by death grips will get me ready to lift some fucking weights uh or jog for that matter um but in terms of styles of music if it's like a ho-hum day i like listening to synthwave there was a good synthwave playlist on synthwave for working out synthwave workout it's got a picture of Arnold and like the fucking eighties on it. Um, it's a pretty good playlist. I liked it. Uh, I like a lot of MF doom. If it's going to be like a more kind of maintenance workout or it's really crowded and I have to wait a lot to get to uh, a thing of weights. Um, and the gym I used to go to listen to, a just ball shrinkingly awful amount of new metal. So some days I would just need an antidote <laughs> to that. And I would listen to future funk. Uh, while working out like I was in a 1988 Hong Kong aerobics class Um, (laughs) just because I couldn't take listening to Rob Zombie's Dragula one more fucking time. Uh, So no offense to Dragula. It was just overused. It was on the Matrix Um, soundtrack. Yes, it was. (laughs) So yeah, that was me. Uh, I have have bands that never fail uh, and then I've got genres for different moods. But that's all mainly for weight rooms because running's hard and I'm fat. Um, so, 
I like running, but I, I need stuff that just keeps going while yeah. I run. Um, mm-hmm. Ross, you, 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 you still maintain a workout schedule, I believe. Anything in particular yeah. outside of Vaporwave that you listen to? Uh, vaporwave is not good for working out. <laughs> like, let me let me be honest. I love Doesn't vaporwave. energize you. No. It is not. It is a music to deal with safety and anxiety. Uh, it is not a music to energize you by. I mean, synthwave is, but not that. Uh, honestly, I am. Uh, honestly, basically, I go on YouTube and I type in drum and bass mix, and I find a good mix, and then I uh, use various software to download that mix onto my phone. Uh, but basically anything drum and bass, uh, in that entire genre is just like, ah, get me energized. Now there was a time when the, uh, folk metal was really good. Uh, there's a band, Alluviate, uh, that had a really good album. I listened to a lot, uh, Japanese speed metal too. Um, yeah. And then there's another, uh, avant-garde metal band called Diablo Swing Orchestra that I listened to a lot while I was working out. But, uh, yeah, I've transitioned to almost entirely drum and bass workout. Uh, so that's basically... <laughs> My daytime, I need to, it's my, it's my, uh, uh, something to sub, uh, to complement my cup of coffee to keep me energized and going. And especially for when working out, but yeah, uh, any, any subgenre of drum and bass, I am uh, hospital records can do no wrong according basically. So. Love it. Love it. Ken, thanks so much for the question. We've got one segment left. Caleb's going to grab a beer and we'll be right back for drunk enough. Caleb, it's our last beer of this episode. What is it? Well, it's from Family Brewery. Oof. Hug? 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 I don't know. It's Belgian. It's it's Delirium Red, a Belgian ale with cherry and elderberries. Here's the thing. Delirium Trimmins, one of my all-time ones. Mm-hmm. Hate that beer. It is one of the most disgusting things I've ever had in my mouth. I cannot stand it. Sweet so, spaghettios. Yeah, I'm wondering how a cherry and elderberry version of that is going to go. But somebody gave it to me. Who am I to question the beer hole? Yeah, I don't feel great about it, <laughs> to, to be totally honest. Like, the whole thing kind of I've never heard of that bit. beer before, and that's, like, the worst possible name you can give to a, oh, to a, to a beer. Like, yeah. It's exact. It's, a, it's an exact flavor match. Are they trying to drive people to sobriety with that beer? Like, not just with the taste, it's but the name? It is the exact flavor profile of Robitussin. Like, if it was thicker, I would think it was Robitussin. It's no, just like you. watered down Robitussin. I don't want that. Yeah. Um, I'm that I'm, said, I'm, Robitussin, as medicines go, not as bad as I've had. I've had worse. It's not Epicac. And uh, for all you out there, robo tripping, stay safe. But uh, I'm going to give it a two. Tussin isn't the worst flavor I've ever had, but it is Robotussin. So anyway, I'm going to give be generous and give that a two. There it is. It's all twos or all fives this episode, by the way, and mostly yeah, twos. Yeah. So. We were shit. just afraid to do the other songs. Let's be honest. We all. I were. think that's it. Fuck I you. I'm it. not. I'm a hero. <laughs> okay, what's the one? Them. Give us a one I'm right a, now. I'm a hero. Give us one. Yeah. Okay. He did do it. Fuck you, producer Ross. I got it. So Chris Oshita says, in Drunk Enough, how do you view your relationships with escapism? Is it an important break from reality, a method of coping with it, or does it actually become more important than reality? I assume my career would be my primary source of meaning and satisfaction in my life. Uh, Chris then goes on to say that he is increasingly identifying more with his hobbies. Uh, and that's where the escapism thing comes in from. We've talked about escapism as a value in art before, but um, I'm not sure we've necessarily talked about it as a pillar of identity. Uh, and so I thought that might be a topic we were drunk enough to discuss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally, totally. And it's interesting to me because um, I think the function of uh, – and we were talking about this a little bit off the mic, Caleb. I think the function of graduate school is that it is really easy to have kind of a swingy relationship to escapism. You're either all in on the work you're doing or you're all in on the escapism you're doing to not be doing the work. Yeah, and, you absolutely need the escapism and you feel bad about doing it the entire time and guilty. Right. That's yeah, that's exactly right. Mindset. Yeah. And so I think that I have had to learn to outwork that mindset. And so now 
when I deal with issues of escapism or any guilt associated with escapism, it's usually because I feel like I've done too much. And that's a really dynamic metric. Um, like some days that could mean I've done any amount of like not working and other days it could mean like, well, I'm on hour nine of playing Diablo three. And really I only should have dedicated eight hours to Diablo three today. <laughs> and uh, I would tell you that one of the things that I have tried to do because like my wife and I talk about this a lot um, because I have a tendency to observe to Brandy. Like I feel bad. I didn't do that much today. Or I feel bad because I played a lot of Call of Duty today. Or I feel bad because it's Saturday and I didn't exercise. And I could have exercised today. And instead, I played a video game or read or didn't do anything. And Brandy's, like, really aggressive about, like, not letting me create guilt about, like, what ifs. What what else could you have been doing with your time? And I really appreciate that. And so I would tell you one of the ways I have tried to disassociate my identity from my escapist hobbies is by saying my identity is not based on the thing that I am playing or the book that I am reading or the podcast that I'm recording or my job. These are all things that are a part of me, but my identity is based on what I believe, how I try to be to other people, what I think is right and wrong, where I find truth. And so I haven't worked probably as much as I could have, or maybe should have sometimes, to be honest, Chris, um, drawing lines between good escapism, bad escapism, I've tried to draw lines between escapism and its counterpart not being my identity at all. And that has been kind of the challenge that I've struggled with primarily over the last year, if I'm being, if I'm being really honest, but I, I don't know if that answers the question also. For me, Chris, this is where the importance of creativity comes in. Cause I agree. I am a person who planned on identifying fully with their profession, their entire life. Um, I don't think that's something teaching as a profession has rewarded me for, even though teaching as a profession will very punishingly enforce not being a teacher and only a teacher as an identity psychologically. So I have also been very disillusioned with basing my meaning off of uh, my job and my function in society. Yeah. Um, However, uh, I am also deeply uncomfortable with basing your identity off of um, escapism, as you put it, because in our culture, escapism is almost entirely consumed. And uh, in American culture, a lot of times what we confuse for freedom, like I could get this color jeans or this color jeans. I could play this type of video game or a different type of video game. Right. And I could get angry about it online because my tribe's better than your tribe. That bullshit is, I think it's even more poisonous than like building yourself on a purpose in life. I think, you know, regulating your escapism to consumption in a market is also a pretty shaky fucking pillar upon which to base a self. Um, that said, that's why I like creating stuff. Like, and the only thing I can do is write. Um, and while I have fundamentally monetized that, and I still, I mean, obviously, if you looked at my books, I still obviously don't think of it as a business. I still think of it as art. I still think of it as fundamentally creative um, and that it has a purpose beyond what is practical, what is transactional, what is strictly which isn't to say I want people to steal my art, but it's also to say if people steal my art, I'm not going to waste my life capitalistically chasing after them like fucking Scrooge McDuck. Like, because the point of the art was deeper than the money I made off of it. Mm-hmm. I just also live in capitalism and I cannot afford to turn down the money I make on it. So right. uh, I do think escapism in many ways is a healthier thing to base an identity off of, but I think it has to have a creative component. Because if you're not feeding, bringing something new into the world with your consumption, turning those preferences and the false choice of capitalism into a personality is going to make you like a hollow person whose whole personality is like, oh, I'm a Cardinals fan. Oh, I'm a Star Wars guy. You Please, please be more than that. Like, you know, at least if you're the... Uh, fuck, I don't know. Um, 
assistant janitor and you decide to have a purpose to be the best assistant janitor that's ever roamed the halls of whatever place you do a night shift at, that's way cooler than being Star Wars guy. Being guys like, no, I'm mainly more of a Hulu person instead of a Netflix person. That is an empty shell masked as a human. Um, just you got to create something. That's all. Yeah. That's all I can say. Yeah. Well, and like for me, the so the thing is like so maybe you're the world's best assistant janitor, but you're also a Cardinals fan, and also you typically like Hulu more, and also you play a lot of The Witcher. Like I just, I yeah, think, and that's good. Uh, that that's good. But like the thing is, I think there's so little value in the consumption choice aspect of basing a personality off escapism that I still think you're in the danger there of someone kicking out the other side of that table i think that table can stand one-legged basically if it's just the purpose of that but the thing is if somebody kicks your job out from under you there guess what doesn't save you the fact that you played the witcher (laughs) like guess what isn't coming to help you out you can art your way out of that i've seen people do it i've done it myself like you can create your way through that nightmare um and that's the thing that's lasting and will sustain you but man if you let your fucking identity be your job and then you assume that you're like coloring this identity with these beautiful things you've bought that is you're you're one bad day away like right yeah you're one bad day away from that whole thing dying like yeah i I was not arguing for a central focus on your job and then you had some hobbies Mm -hmm. Uh, rather i'm kind of arguing arguing for i guess like a tapestry or patchwork like approach to each of these things having value when they have value and and not being necessarily a core part of your identity when they do or don't have value. And so for me, um, for a long period of time, identity was defined by my job and I made unhealthy decisions because identity was defined by my job. Um, And alternatively at other times, uh, my identity was defined my choice by my hobbies and I made unhealthy decisions because my identity was defined by my hobbies. We called it destiny. Yeah. Right. That's exactly I was right. There. Yeah, I did yeah. it too. Yeah. Right. And, and I so woke up I, next to that couch on you in the flop house and yeah, that's exactly right. Adults. Yeah. 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 And then I played a hunter. Um, <laughs> and so um, th- these things are hobbies and jobs um, and interests. These things are transient. Uh, and for me, identity is less transient than that. It's about beliefs and values and what makes sense to you and doesn't make sense to you and what you want to stand for and what you don't want to stand for and what you like and what you don't like. And your hobbies probably reflect those things. And in some ways, your hobbies probably help inform and, and are constitutive of those things. Um, but to, but for like, I have tried really hard as a 33, now 34 year old to say like, that is not who I am. It's something I do. Who I am is this. And because I have a reasoning system and a value system, I've decided that I'm going to do this thing. But the moment I get, uh, I get tunnel vision around anyone identifying or defining element of my existence is the moment I also realize like tunnel vision, man, like open it up a little bit, step back, you know, you're looking at 10 feet, get to a hundred feet uh, and see, see how things look differently. And um, uh, I think Chris is looking for here uh, reasonably some validation for like watching a lot of Netflix or binging something or playing a lot of board games. And what I would tell you is like, I don't, uh, I don't know. I've also been there and I don't know that at this point in my life, I use those things as validation. I look for validation in doing those things. Instead, I've decided those things are valuable to me. And so I spend time on them uh, because they are in line with the way I want to spend my time. And so Chris, if you feel like you're watching a lot of Netflix, if you're watching on Netflix because you like Netflix, like Netflix, that I kind of think that's great, man. Like, good for you. Um, if you're watching a lot of Netflix because you feel like you have no other way of interacting with the world, and and this is then then maybe like I don't know, then you know, um, that probably is like a reasonable thing to ask questions about internally. I I, I don't know, but for me, uh, you is greater than the sum of the things you do. Yeah. And so, uh, so that, that's kind of what, I, what I've landed on. And, and I'll fully admit in the middle, you know, days into season 21 of Diablo three, this is something, this is not like an easy passive, you accept it and move on. This is something I have to actively tell myself and then instantiate because it is easy to sit and play a video game for 10 hours 
and then think, God, this is all I did today was play a video game. Oh my God. Am I someone who just plays video games all the time and doesn't do anything else productive and then starts getting a lot of guilt about that stuff. The, the thing there isn't video games or not video games, Netflix or not, not Netflix. It's the way in which you interact with the decision you've made and why you've made it. I think, I think that's the bit. And so that's, that's what I'm stuck on. Yeah. The, the existential crisis is not, the existential crisis is cyclical. It's gone through multiple times. If you look at the mm-hmm. actual philosophy, the pillars of identity constantly crumble and need to be replaced with new ones. So maybe just like take comfort in the fact that the anxiety is not that you've based your current idea of self on something that's wrong or crumbling and turning into sand. Cause that's always the case. <laughs> like it, that's always the case, no matter what you pick right. it on. Yeah. The anxiety comes from not having one at the moment. And so you have to build that pillar, whatever it is. And my, my caveat as a materialist who believes that a large part of your personality is what you do is that just make sure that thing you build um, doesn't go sleep at capitalism houses on the weekend. Cause they can't, it can't be trusted as a uh, caretaker your money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have going custody with capitalism with your idea of self. Cause that kid is going to get lost. Um, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, he's getting arrested for sure. Um, uh, hey, if you have been listening to this, it means that you just listened to episode 69 of the Mix 6 podcast. Nice. Thank you for your time. Nice. Um, you might not know it, but we had some technical difficulties in this episode, and guess what? We just fucking dealt with it because we're professional as fuck. Um Hey, if this is your first time joining the Mix 6 Podcast, we, we hope you loved it. And there's a lot more content on the back end here. If you're not already a patron of the Mix 6 Podcast, just go to patreon.com, look for the Mix 6 Podcast, and there's a ton of additional episodes out there. If you're not following us on Twitter, check us out at the Mix 6. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we've got a page in a group. There's some shit on Instagram occasionally, and we've got some videos on YouTube. That's Y-O-U-T-U-B-E.com, not any of the other tubes. If you're listening to this on a podcast streaming application, don't forget to rate and review the Mix 6 podcast so other people can find us. And perhaps most importantly of all of these things that I say at the end of every episode, we hope that you're staying safe. We hope that you're staying healthy. And we hope that you're doing okay. If you're not and we can be helpful, don't be afraid to DM us, send us a message, shoot us an email, reach out to us through Patreon. However we can help, we will certainly try. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your energy. We appreciate your attention. I'm Spencer. I am three gigs of data on Ray K's arc ship. Why do you get three gigs? There, there are three Well, there is no we anymore. We've had to oh. gasalt. It's three okay. gigs. Okay. We've had to become a hive mind. We so. each get a gig. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We are well, three case, gigs of data on Ray K's arc ship. I'm choosing so, vaporwave. We can talk like Venom. Game. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We, we are the Mixix podcast three gigs of data on a spaceship. We'll, we'll talk to you next time.